enjoyment, that, that our lives are, are, are somehow less important unless we have that other thing. Unless we somehow get that or this. And in that way, covetousness lies about God. It says God is not enough. And in that way, covetousness lies about the good life. It says happiness depends on things we don't have rather than on the God that we do have. And covetousness lies about our neighbor. It says our neighbor is in the way of our happiness and his stuff ought to be ours. We know these are lies because of what our Lord says in Luke 12, verse 15. He says there, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. One of the things that's wrong with the prosperity gospel is it teaches people that life is at least partly about how much stuff you have. Gentrification motivated by covetousness is simply an American economic form of the prosperity gospel. But that's not all the New Testament tells us ethically about this. So we get the thou shalt not in Exodus 20, 17, and we get Jesus helping us to understand what the abundant life consists of. It's not of possessions, but, but the New Testament goes on to instruct the church in what its responsibility is with regard to covetousness. So look with me first in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. Paul there is writing to the church, and in the second half of Ephesians, he's instructing them on how they are to live as Christians. And this is what he says in chapter 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and impurity, we kind of focus in on those. We kind of have trained ourselves to put neon signs over those, right? Appropriately. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, or covetousness, which has become a respectable sin among so many of God's people. He says, now, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Jump down to verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, notice, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those are strong words which makes covetousness a serious sin, that the person given over to it has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Listen, you can grasp so much for things in this world that you lose your grasp on the world to come. You can seek so hard to possess things in this life that you wind up losing a possession in the life to come. Now, if covetousness cannot be named among us as Christians, then surely we cannot be silent about its existence in the world as it affects our neighbors. Or turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Paul gets even stronger there. Not only must it not be named among us, it must be put to death in us. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You say, well, what is that, God? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and there it is again, 
and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Paul sees us, the Bible instructs us as Christians that there's been this great change in us. We used to walk in these things. It used to be the pattern of our conduct, and we weren't bothered by them. But now that Christ has made us new and we have been born again through faith in him, we have to put those things away. We have to, to start with verse uh, 5 there, we have to put them to death spiritually. So this is a thing that should not be named among Christians and should be put to death in Christians. And so therefore a Christian can never be pro-gentrification, particularly if it's motivated by a discernible covetousness, when we are called to put covetousness, which is idolatry, to death. Because God is our God who gives us good things and in his goodness limits our blessings. We are not to worship things or seek fulfillment of desires outside of him. And we're not to give others the impression that they should too. So our piety must go public. What we treasure in our hearts must be demonstrated in our homeland, in our neighborhoods. So to see that more clearly, look with me at one other passage, Romans chapter 13, verses 9 to 10. Romans chapter 13. Because it's not only that we should not covet, which is the negative part of the law, it's also that we shall love our neighbor, which is the positive part of the law. Every law of God, every, every one of the Ten Commandments, which forbids a certain thing, implies in it the encouragement of, of a sort of positive alternative. We see this really clearly in Romans 13. Look at me at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see what God is telling us here, that the commandments always have two halves. It has what it prohibits, and it has also what it encourages, what it requires. And so it prohibits adultery, it prohibits covetousness, but it requires neighbor love. And the nature of neighbor love is that it does no harm to its neighbor. Now, it does no harm to his neighbor either in actively committing harm against the neighbor or in bystanding while harm is done to the neighbor. Love intercedes on behalf of the well-being of the neighbor. And so the Christian is to be an intercessor on behalf of our poor neighbors being displaced by this massive thing we call gentrification. Covetousness is law-breaking or sin. It must not be named among Christians. In fact, it must be put to death among Christians. In its place, we must have love for neighbor, which means we must see that no wrong is done to our neighbors. That's the ethical requirement of the Bible for the Christian with regard to covetousness, which I'm arguing is the motivating sin that drives at least some of what we call redevelopment or gentrification. Right? So now how do we lay a theological framework 
for thinking about this in a way that maybe helps us avoid some of the other errors. And for that, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 20-something down to the end. 22? Thanks for the help. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. We see the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. He's at a place called the Areopagus. This is a place where the philosophers of his day gathered and, and sort of bantied about and debated and shared their philosophy. So imagine Paul rose up on the Areopagus and, and there you got Cornell West and Larry Elder and um, you got some uh, five percenters or some uh, Hebrew Israelites and you got some Christians. I mean, everybody's out there with all their gods and all their ideas and, and, and they're all debating it. So much so that they even build a shrine to an unknown god just in case we miss one. It's a lot like the marketplaces of our day. Now, notice, let's read this. And I want to draw out of this text eight truths about God that we have to keep in mind and four then guardrails for our advocacy with regard to gentrification. Okay, so let's read this together first. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are religious. I think he was cracking on him right there. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, you got the scene there. Paul goes into this sort of um, philosophical, religious, cultural center that's worshiping all kinds of gods, and he stands up to begin to preach, and he is introducing to them the unknown God. And he tells us in the midst of it at least eight things. Number one, God is creator of all. You see it there at the beginning of verse 24? Number two, God doesn't live in temples made by man's hands. That's the second part of verse 24. And that's a good rule of thumb. If you can put your God in a temple, he's not God. 
much bigger than that. And so then Paul tells us in verse 25 that God is self-sufficient. He is not served by it as though he needed anything. He's complete in himself. He doesn't depend upon his creation for his existence. His, his creation depends upon him for existence. That's the second part of what we see in verse 25, that God is the giver of life on whom everything else depends. Or look there in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. God's the very ground of existence. The fifth thing Paul says there is in verse 26, that God is sovereign in human affairs. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We'll come back to that. The, the sixth thing we see is in verse 27. God saves sinners. He says he's determined that, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And number seven, verse 29, God really is, as we sang a moment ago, unimaginable. He's bigger than anything we can imagine. He's not like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Every picture we conceive of of God is by definition less than the glory of God and therefore is idolatry. So idolatry consists in worshiping things that are not God as though they were God, but also idolatry consists in worshiping God in a way that's beneath his glory with images and depictions that do not capture his glory. It's unimaginable. And here's the final thing. God is judge. We see that in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. He's patient, but now his patience has a sell-by date. He overlooked it for a while. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And Paul is just walking these people through the gospel of our Lord. He is the creator of everyone in this room. He has made you for himself. He has determined where you live. And he's done that with a purpose in mind that you might come to know him. You might feel yourself groping in the darkness trying to sort of reach God actually that's God placing you where you can find him. And he wants to be very clear that the way in which you find him is through his son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for our sins. And as the text says here, was raised from the grave so that we might be sure of two things, that there is a day of judgment and there is an escape from judgment. And it's in Jesus who will come again and judge the world in righteousness, which means the verdict that he gives about our lives as sinners is going to be true and accurate and his justice will be just. We won't even argue back. We will bow and say, you are Lord. But there's a better future for those who confess their sins now and repent of their sins now and put their faith in Jesus now. So they will meet Jesus not as their judge, but as their savior. 
the one who has taken away their sins, the one who has declared them righteous by, by giving them his own righteousness, and the one who will raise them from the dead with him to enjoy his love forever. Living not in a temple made by the hands of men, but living in a city to come whose builder and architect is God himself. This is what God offers you this morning if you're here and you're not yet a Christian. New and eternal life in Jesus Christ with your sins forgiven and your soul and heart changed, made new and a fellowship with him that will never end. Repent of your sins and believe upon Christ that you might be saved from the day of judgment and that you might know him as your savior. If you're visiting with us this morning and you've never repented, that is, turned away from your sin, and you've never put your entire trust in Jesus as God to save you from judgment, to save you from the penalty of your sins, we would like nothing more to explain that to you slowly and clearly, that you might understand it and hopefully believe it and be made new this morning. To talk with me, talk with any of the Christian friends who brought you here, we'd love to tell you about Jesus. But now what does Acts 17 have to do with this question of gentrification? Well, I think the portrait that Paul gives us of God here has a secondary application that gives us a framework for how we engage this. I want to give it to you in sort of four borders. Number one, we must frame the issue of gentrification keeping one eye on our common humanity. You notice there again in verse 26 that God made all the people of the earth from one man. We are all descendants of, of Adam and Eve. We are, we are all therefore close cousins, not different races, not different kinds of people. And if in our thinking about gentrification we do more than simply analyze the racial dynamics, but we begin to embody the racial dynamics, then, then we've gone a step too far. We, we, we have perhaps lost, lost a sort of eye on our common humanity. We don't want to respond to a dehumanizing force like gentrification with dehumanizing attitudes and perspectives ourselves. We want to keep an eye on the fact that God is the maker of us all and we are related to each other. And so therefore we should be against things like restrictive covenants, racial segregation, I would argue even against class-based housing, whether it's the housing projects that segregate the poor or whether it's the gated community that segregates the wealthy. The writer of Ecclesiastes says the same thing happens to the rich and the poor alike. We all die and we all meet God. I think in terms of Christian advocacy, that awareness should reflect, be reflected in our advocacy. Second thing, we must frame the issue by keeping an eye on our common humanity, but we also must frame the issue by trusting God's sovereignty in the movement of people. Notice there again in verse 26, the second part of verse 26. That God has not only made all mankind from one man to live on the face of the earth, but he has determined, that's a strong word, the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has decided not only where we would live, but when and how long we would live there. God is very active in the movement of people. Some of you have moved recently to a new home or a new apartment. Well, yeah, you made that decision, 
But guess who else's hand was in that? God's hand was in that. And he's got purposes in that. And it doesn't matter whether it's on the micro level of an individual purchasing a home or moving or so on, or on the macro level of something like the Syrian refugee crisis. The movement of people is in God's hands. He is sovereign. He is involved. He's not removed. But now, let's be careful. This does not mean that God approves of all the causes of the movement. So to say that God is sovereign over the movement of people is not to say that God endorses sinful gentrification. It is not to say that God endorses housing discrimination or redlining or war which creates refugees. He's ruling, he's active, he's good, but he's standing behind evil differently than he, than he stands behind good. So we want to see God sovereignly at work, but we don't want to accuse God of the wickedness of men. You tracking with me? A third thing. We want to frame this issue keeping an eye on common humanity. We want to frame this issue thinking about the sovereignty of God in the movement of people. But number three, we want to frame this issue, verse 27 and verses 30 and 31, with an evangelistic purpose. Notice now, God may move people far from home to bring them close to him. God takes people to unknown lands so they can meet their unknown God. In the movement of people, as we said before, God has an evangelistic agenda. He has determined these things so that some might be saved. Now, this should reflect, be reflected in a difference between the secular advocate against gentrification and the Christian advocate against gentrification. We should join our secular friends in arguing for what's right and what's good. But now we should be heard to say not only that gentrification is wrong, we should be in the ANC meetings, we should be in the neighborhood meetings, we should be in the, in the public hearings also saying, and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We should be speaking into the covetousness that is driving some of this and calling it the sin that it is and calling people to repent of that sin and challenging them to turn to Christ. That's why God has put us here in the neighborhood. That's why God has brought the neighbors here, whether they're neighbors of, of two or three generations or whether they're neighbors of two or three weeks. If we're thinking about God being involved in this, in the sovereign movement of people, he's doing that with a purpose so that they may be brought near to him. We are, beloved, the answer to God's sovereign strategy when he moves people to this neighborhood. We are the evangelistic answer just as we are part of the ethical answer to this dilemma. And so we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we have an added and unique purpose as Christians to bear witness to Christ in the gospel and to call those who, who might be acting out of sin in this to turn from sin, to fear the day of judgment, and to find a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the final thing we want to keep an eye on. Verses 30 and 31, we want to keep an eye on Judgment Day. And I want to suggest that this does two things for us. Number one, it frees us from vengeance and judgment as our motivation. 
We can enter into any kind, any number of advocacy issues driven by a desire to punish. And I'm, I'm distinguishing that from a desire for justice to be done. Those are not the same things. We want to leave, as the Bible says, vengeance to the Lord. He will repay. And we want to recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. I don't need to add my little punishment to that. I don't need to add my little, my little anger to that. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I need to stand back and say, hey, beloved, God is hot and he's coming. Come over here and escape with me. And I need to let them know if they don't escape, and even if it's not fixed in this world, it will be fixed for a very long time eternally in the world to come. Frees me to be motivated not by vengeance, but it frees me to be motivated by reverence for God. I'll give an account too. Just as those who are seen as Jutifiers will give an account. And so we want to keep the day of judgment in view so that we are sober and so that we are active and so that we are focused on the greatest aspects of this, namely the salvation of our Lord. Which brings us finally and quickly to another question. I said, I gave you all five. There are really six. Well, it might just be five. Look like I left my last sheet at home. It's on the slide, isn't it? There we go. You've seen this slide before. There's homework for us to do. We have to identify which lanes we're going to run in. So now I've been laying out things before you from slavery to gentrification. As I said before, I think what we want as a church is to have a thousand flowers bloom, right? When we think about particularly our individual level engagement in these things. But then secondly, I, we, we, you know, thinking back to Bo Hughes' sermon to us, very helpful sermon talking about the distinction between what we do individually and what things might bubble up for us as a whole church. We need to be praying about whether or not this might be one of those things that as a whole church family, we take on and get engaged in. But we want to identify our lanes and run in those lanes. Number two, we want to identify our, our sort of particular issues. So housing is a big sort of policy area. And you can get on many sides of that policy question. Which one interests you? Which aspect is, is, is most pressing? Is God giving you a burden for? Number three, again, we want to identify how we do this locally. What are the advocacy organizations here that we should connect with? What are the people doing good work here that we should connect with? How do we get involved? Whether it's in our sort of um, ANC um, groups or whether it's in our sort of, uh, if we have a community uh, organization in our in our in our um, apartment complex or our home, how are we going to get involved in this? Number four, what particular responsibility and authority and influence has God given you? You know, so we may have a brother here who, who chairs their, their neighborhood association, has a particular set of responsibilities and opportunities that might be a little bit different than folks who are just neighbors but, but don't hold a post like that. We have folks here who work in public policy, have a different set of responsibilities and influence and opportunity. So what, think, what has God given you on this issue of housing that he means for you to steward to the good of those being displaced in our community? Number five, identify your strategy. Number six, identify your allies. Let me end with a quote that has sort of stuck with me for a couple of months now. 
It's a good quote. You've heard me encourage you to move into the neighborhood. And I think that implies something that we ought to make explicit, that our brother Peterson has made explicit. If you move into the neighborhood, then you should become an advocate for the people who are already here. That's part of what distinguishes us from the gentrifiers. If we only move into the neighborhood for a housing deal, or if we only move into the neighborhood to be a part of the church, if we only move into the neighborhood for some set of reasons like that, and we don't include with that the kind of neighbor love that speaks up for our most vulnerable neighbors, we're part of the problem, not part of the solution. We don't want to be a part of the problem. We want to be a part of what God is doing to bring justice in the world and equity in the world. And in this case, I think it means applying Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 to sort of lift up our voice and to speak for the vulnerable. And some of the vulnerable among us live right next to us. But they may not for long unless we act and work to protect and to provide justice for them. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for IHOP conversations. And I thank you for the brothers and sisters that make up the ARC family. The ways in which we have opportunity to learn from each other, to encourage each other, to bless each other, to challenge each other, to grow together with one another. And I pray that you give us grace to do so. Especially, Lord, as we are endeavoring to learn to live in a way more consistent with your word, not only in our personal lives, but in our, in our sort of public lives of, of seeking justice and correcting oppression. Lord, I trust that there are some people here, even now, whom you've called to work on matters of, of fair and equitable housing, like our sister Precious. Bless her and her work and, and her organization as they think about and work on these issues. Lord, I pray that you would raise up more such persons, whether they are working in those fields or whether as a matter of passion and burden, they give themselves individually to this work. We eagerly desire to love our neighbors. And we eagerly desire that that love be expressed in practical ways, including defending the rights of the poor, speaking up for the vulnerable, Protecting, O oh Lord, the, the homes and the inheritance of those who are, are, are at threat of losing them because of forces that are much bigger than them. So Lord, help us. Give us grace. Show us mercy. Fill us with your spirit. Grant us power that we would bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection and that we would bear witness to the righteousness of his rule and kingdom. Do this, O oh Lord, we pray for your glory, for your glory, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.